Thank you for choosing Tox News, your only source to the Portum Rebellion. It is your host, the wacko weirdo rebel scum Jedi hero. With another live one. Now, I'm not going to be covering anything that's uh, big. I'm not going to cover Mitch McConnell blocking $2,000 with poison pill legislation, saying we need to do something about Section 230 or election reform before giving Americans the money they need. I'm not going to talk about how there was over 3,700 COVID deaths yesterday. Rather, I'm going to focus in on a certain form of autonomous research and development. I had done this kind of segment before, back when CHOP was a thing in Seattle. The Occupied Protest. Today we're going to be going over the homeless issue. And what it means in today's America. And the reason that comes to my mind is because over Twitter, I had commented in an Andy No post that had gotten me a bit of attention in 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 that in that section merely for my words, and uh, I got ratioed pretty hard. Uh, far more comments on what I had said than any likes or retweets. Which is okay, because if I'm getting ratioed in Andy Noe's uh, mentions in his, in his reply section, then I, I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job. And what I had commented on was the occupation of a motel owner's motel. In Fife, Seattle, I believe... Um, over 40 people had stayed past their payment. They paid for one night to stay at the hotel, but have continued to stay, uh, longer than that, demanding that the city pay for the nights that they had stayed and then continue to pay for their stay. Uh, these people are homeless and don't have any shelter. Um, the hotel owner was not very happy about the situation either. The city, for a little bit, did not do anything. Uh, couldn't get protesters and the, uh, you know, the occupants to leave. But uh, as of today, they have left. As of today, the police did their job of evicting people from places, and uh, there's no longer a situation going on there. But I just found it so interesting because I got a lot of responses for saying that the city should step up and help shelter these people while also helping the motel owner uh, by paying, by giving out that money. And I'm not 100% sure of the motel owner's financial situation, but I could imagine under COVID that he has been doing a little bit worse. Um, as far as I know, he has gotten PPP loans. Um, but, you know... It's really up to the people who receive those if they're actually sufficient enough. I don't receive those, so I'm not 100% sure. But I had said that I think it would be a good idea for the city to step up and pay the man and allow the people to stay at that 
motel while it was unoccupied. And here are some of the replies I got. LOL. Like he's got a home or a job. He lives in mommy's basement. If he joins in, she at least gets a break from delivering him his hot pockets. I love it. They know me so well. They're not homeless, though. They're just being cunts and begging for free money. Love it. Love it. Would you allow these pieces of shit to take over your house? Obviously, he doesn't have a house, so nobody should, it seems. Wonderful. You are living proof that even an idiot can get four followers. Shouts out to my four followers on Twitter. You guys love me for no reason whatsoever. Now, more comments go, and I've been receiving a lot. I think I have over like 20 in that section, but I've only taken a few screenshots. The real primos, the ones that like obviously I'm not going to be able to convince anybody of anything because all they could do was attack me rather than talking about any other solutions that we could find for the people who are seeking shelter or really anything that would be, I don't know, a, you know, a, a conversation of substance. Um, this guy says, you clearly don't live in a real world. Your failed public education is showing too. Not paying for a service is theft, and that's a crime, and not the other way around. And it's because I had said that capitalism is a crime, because in capitalism, you can't have things unless you pay for it, no matter what it is. Um, so that's, that's wonderful. I love it. Um, and I understand uh, theft is a crime, but when people are put into desperate situations, they are going to commit crimes in order to survive. Um, I'm not going to sit here and morally beat people into submission on whether or not that's okay. Um, but I come from a place of understanding that if somebody has gone a long enough time without food, they may go to a store and steal it. If someone goes long enough without shelter and they find a house that is empty, they may squat in it. And the thing about the protest is, is that if the city in a lot of these situations, you know, even in the BLM protests, if the city's not willing to do anything about it, people will break laws by going out and protesting, ignoring the police's call to go home in order for their demands to be met. Otherwise, there's no point of doing anything because then the city will continue to stomp all over people unless more people show up to defend those people. Now, next comment. Oh, I told this guy that uh, uh, that he didn't understand what direct action is, which I guess is a leftist term for uh, getting up and doing something, even if it's considered illegal by the state, by the establishment, which a lot of leftists are anti-establishment, so tend to break a lot of laws. Um, this guy said, direct, ac direct action would be get a job, Looser. Spelled loser wrong. No empathy for lazy thieves. I bet you don't say a word in real life. Just exist like a shit stain on an otherwise good pair of undies. Which I thought was pretty funny. I, you know, because honestly, like, I am the most beautiful shit stain on these terrible pair of undies. Um, invite them to stay at your home rent free! Exclamation point. This guy replied, he won't. His mom and dad won't allow him to have sleepovers during the pandemic. 
So witty. So witty. And I, I save these because people just outright deny dignity to those who may be in search of it. And then attack mine um, simply because I took a view opposite of theirs. This guy said for me to give them my house as if I actually own it. <laughs> no, I'm a renter. And I didn't respond to any of these people. It's utterly pointless. It says, Tox News, let this trash stay in your house, exclamation point, exclamation point. Because allowing people to stay in my house is going to fix the systemic issue that is uh, homelessness. That's going to solve the problem entirely if I just let people stay at my house. So that's uh, that's fantastic. Especially, too, since I don't live in Seattle, so I couldn't help this these specific people, which everybody said I should do. Um, and so, I mean, that just really took me on a tangent. It just, it just took me away. Because here, the National Low Income Housing Coalition has a countdown. 32 days, 8 hours, 35 minutes, and 25 seconds, as of right now, until tens of millions of renters could lose their homes when the federal eviction moratorium ends. And they've been keeping eviction updates. Last updated was December 18th, 2020, and it reads, Federal, state, and local eviction moratoriums are rapidly expiring, and the CARES Act supplemental unemployment benefits will end soon. At that time, millions of low-income renters will be at risk of losing their homes. The National Low-Income Housing Council, right? Council? Oh, geez. Coalition. Oh, geez. National Low-Income Housing Coalition estimates at least $100 billion in emergency rental assistance is needed to keep low-income renters stably housed during and after the pandemic. This tracker links to news reports of the growing evictions, crisis in various cities and states, and you can visit their searchable database and map, which allows some renters to identify if their home is covered by the CARES Act eviction moratoriums. So I offer this because you can go to nlihc.org to keep up. That's part of the autonomous research and development, is to give resources and for the people to stay updated. Now, just out of curiosity, I gotta go down, go down, go down. Washington State in Seattle. And it reads, this is the 18th update for Washington State. In Washington, some tenants and landlords are slipping through the cracks of the current eviction moratorium. Ariana Laureano and her roommate both hourly workers fell $4,000 behind on rent, and their landlord tried to evict them. They successfully sought out help from B. Seattle, a tenant advocacy group. Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin issued an order officially extending a moratorium on evictions for residents through March 31st. So that's considerate. I'm going to go up to Oregon, because that's where the main story is. And it only has one update here from December 11th, and it said the city of Portland's eviction moratorium expires on January 8th. Now, the update from December 3rd says Oregon lawmakers are considering a six-month extension, which we just read that they did, to the statewide eviction moratorium, along with additional help for landlords. If passed, the new proposal would extend the eviction moratorium through the end of June. Representative Julie Fahey 
sorry if I got that wrong, Fahey, uh, chair of the Interim House Committee on Housing, said they wanted to line up the expiration date with the end of the school year. <laughs> it just sounds... Ah, uh, that sounds actually pretty ghoulish. Because <laughs> it's like, well, we got to make sure that the kids go to school before we kick their parents out. Otherwise, they're going to have a hard time going to school, or at least smelling good when they do. Um, yeah, so that's that's great. So hit up nlihc.org. That is the National Low Income Housing Coalition, who will keep you updated on the eviction moratorium. And you can even find specifics about where you live in case you are worried about your situation. Now, moving on, I have the National Alliance to End Homelessness, which is funny that we need all these coalitions and alliances because the government, is, as far as I can see it, uh, does not care for the homeless too much. Now, homelessness in America, 17 out of every 10,000 people in the United States were experiencing homelessness on a single night in January 9, uh, January 2019 during HUD's annual point-in-time count. So that's the housing of urban and urban development. These 567,715 people represent a cross-section of America. They are associated with every region of the country, family status, gender category, and racial ethnic group. And then they have a wonderful graph that breaks down the demographics specifically of individuals experiencing homeless per year, people in families, chronically homeless individuals, veterans, and unaccompanied youths. Veterans sitting at about 37,085. Chronically homeless individuals are about 96,141. People in families sitting at 171,670. And regular old individuals, I guess, is at 396,045. Totaling to that 567,715 recorded in 2019. But what does this all mean? So certain subpopulations are significantly represented within homelessness. Individuals make up 70% of people experiencing homelessness who are living on their own or in the company of other adults. The remainder, 30%, are people in families with children. Males. Hmm. Homelessness is significantly defined by gender. 60% of all people experiencing homelessness are male. Amongst individuals, the numbers are starker. 70% are men and unaccompanied male youth. So, far too many people in America sleep outside and in other locations not meant for human habitation. This group includes more than 200,000 people, 37% of the overall population. Among individuals experiencing homelessness, the numbers are more dire. One in two are unsheltered. Now this is covering the most at risk. Numerical size is one reason to focus on a sub population within homelessness. Risk is another. Some groups are much more likely to become homeless than the national average. Pacific Islanders and Native Americans are most likely to be homeless in America when compared to all other racial ethnic groups. Within the former, 160 people experience homelessness out of every 10,000 compared to the national average 
of 17 out of every 10,000. Pacific Islanders and Native Americans are numerically small groups within the U.S., making it more difficult for the U.S. Census Bureau and homelessness services systems to count them accurately. Nevertheless, available data suggests they face significant challenges. Black Americans, multiracial Americans, and Hispanics, Latinxes, are similarly situated. Group members are far more likely to be homeless than the national average and white Americans. It says, prioritized groups. Researchers in the public policy world have emphasized some additional subpopulations. Chronically homeless individuals are disabled and have experienced long-term and or repeated episodes of homelessness. They are currently 17% of the population. Veterans who are 7% of people experiencing homelessness are prioritized due to their service to our country. And unaccompanied youth who represent 6% of the population are a vulnerable age group consisting of those under 25 years old. COVID-19 vulnerable. According to the CDC, some individuals are at higher risk of becoming seriously ill from COVID-19. They include older adults age 65 and over. However, people experiencing homelessness age faster than the housed people. Research indicates that they have physical conditions that mirror those of people 15 to 20 years older than them. On a single day, an estimated 202,623 single adults experiencing homelessness are over the age of 50, suggesting they may be uniquely vulnerable to becoming seriously ill during the pandemic crisis. An additional CDC-identified risk group is people with pre-existing health conditions. Before the current crisis, growing numbers were experiencing unsheltered homelessness, a living situation associated with poor health. A recent study sampled unsheltered individuals from across the country, finding 84% self-reporting existing physical health conditions. Only 19% of people in shelters said the same. Compared to the previous year, homelessness increased by 3% in the 2019 point-in-time count. This marked the third straight year of national-level increases. Despite this negative movement, the long-term trend has been downward. Overall homelessness has decreased by 12% since 2007, the year nationwide data collection began. The current COVID-19 crisis has the potential to diminish or completely wipe out these modest gains. Existing progress has been uneven. Subpopulations prioritized in policy and practice, including funding decisions, have made the most impressive gains over the last decade. Veterans experienced the greatest decreases in homelessness, about 50%. Other subpopulations have realized smaller reductions that nevertheless are larger than those in overall homelessness. They include people in families at 29%, chronically homeless individuals at 9%, and people experiencing unsheltered homelessness at 10%. Oof. And then it goes over by state, the total number of people experiencing homelessness per year, and it seems that California and New York states are out of hand and i also find that fascinating because they also do have a large amount of wealth in them so wherever the wealthy go the poor shall follow at a re at a at a, at a you know lower level of standard of living so 
The article continues, one group is noticeably falling behind all others. Individuals have realized a 0.2% reduction in homelessness over the last decade. Some are veterans, unaccompanied youth, and chronically homeless. These subgroups have been experiencing greater progress than individuals more generally, but they only make up a minority of the individual's population and help to mask the delayed progress of a sizable majority who are not veterans, unaccompanied youth, or chronically homeless. Individuals are also solely responsible for the national level increases in overall homelessness that occurred over the last three years. Individual homelessness increased by 11% over that period, even as numbers for people and families continued to decrease. This upwards trend exists across a broad range of individuals, including the chronically homeless, men, women, and every racial ethnic group. As with subpopulations, some states are making more progress towards ending homelessness than others. 30 states reduced homelessness since the previous year. Long-term trends further highlight the more successful stories. A majority, 37, have reduced homelessness since 2007, with the most significant gains occurring in Michigan, negative 70%, Kentucky, negative 49%, and New Jersey, negative 49%. Other states have more people experiencing homelessness than they did more than a decade ago. 14 have seen their numbers increase between 2 and 72% over that period. New and decisive action is necessary to ensure these states build real momentum in the fight against homelessness. Identifying the regions with the most challenges informs nationwide efforts to end homelessness. One approach is to examine the locations with the highest homeless counts. They include states such as California, Florida, New York, and Texas, as well as continuums of care serving New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Texas's balance of state. <laughs> These locations share a common characteristic, relatively large general populations. They include major cities and balance of states encompassing broad expanses of land with numerous towns and cities. 56% of people experiencing homelessness are in five states that have the largest homeless counts. More than one in three are in 20 continuums of care, with the highest numbers of people experiencing homelessness. Thus, much of this national challenge is located in a small number of places, with most jurisdictions having a much smaller problem to manage. And then they have a ranking for uh, state and continuum of care. 2019 Let's see hmm I guess California's certain district is ranking pretty high but also too they have a high number DC is the highest among states very interesting rates of homelessness are another way of gauging the severity of the problem within a jurisdiction they reflect the number of people experiencing homelessness in relation to the general population. Rates across the country are wildly divergent. Among states, territories, the District of Columbia, 93 people experiencing homelessness out of every 10,000, and New York, at 47 out of 10,000, have the highest rates. By contrast, Louisiana, who has 6 out of 10,000, and Mississippi with 4 out of 10,000, have the lowest rates. Many homeless people reside in high-rate jurisdictions. 45% are in the five states' territories with the highest rates. Many of the high rates and continuum of cares are associated with other notable housing issues. Researchers and advocates cite many of them as having the highest housing costs and highest rent burdens. 
housing costs as a percentage of income within the nation. Some states and continuum of cares are anomalies. Their counts and rates defy expectations rooted in overall population size and housing costs. Those states and communities may possess unusual characteristics tied to history, government policy, or culture. Some may have homeless service systems that are either highly effective or falling short of their potential. Counts and rates typically offer useful information about the challenges facing homeless systems. They reflect the number of people who need homeless services. During the current pandemic, there is a new challenge. The number of people who contract an infectious illness, i.e. COVID-19, while needing homeless services. Self-quarantine, social isolation, and stay-at-home orders are difficult, if not impossible, to follow when you do not have a home. Thus, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has offered guidance on how to best serve people in shelters and unsheltered locations. Meeting COVID-19-related health needs is putting new strain on homeless service systems, especially those with large numbers of infected consumers. Recent research predicts the number of COVID-19 cases that will arise among people experiencing homelessness in the nation's counties. Those facing the most severe challenges mainly reside in major cities such as Los Angeles, New York City, San Jose, Seattle, Oakland, San Francisco, Las Vegas, and Phoenix. And then they have a graph about the predicted COVID cases. Hmm. I apologize for my solemnity. It's just a little frustrated. But as the article continues, homeless services systems do not have enough resources to fully meet the needs of everyone experiencing homelessness. Thus, it is helpful to examine the difficult decisions they must make, including how to allot the limited funds available to them. Over the last five years, the number of temporary housing beds, emergency shelter, safe haven, and transitional housing has decreased by 9%. A national-level snapshot of these beds during the point-in-time count is informative. Individual community circumstances vary. However, in the aggregate, systems were able to offer a year-round bed to only 51% of individuals and 100% of people and families, with, latter, with the latter having a surplus of over 15,000 beds. That's actually a, a nice note at the end of that. But the article does continue, stating, During the winter months, some communities temporarily supplement these year-round beds with seasonal ones. Nevertheless, many people are unsheltered, living on the streets, in abandoned buildings, or other locations not suitable for human habitation. Being unsheltered is mostly a challenge for individual adults, but some families with children are also in these living situations. COVID-19 is creating a new type of emergency. According to an early estimate, 400,000 new units are needed to prevent the spread of the virus and care for the sick. These accommodations would allow for social distancing, quarantine, and isolation for people who are typically in crowded shelter settings or living unsheltered. While the number of temporary housing beds decreased by 9%, the number of permanent housing beds increased by 20% over the last five years. And that's permanent supportive housing, rapid rehousing, and other types. These numbers reflect a shift in policy priorities. Renewed emphasis is on ending homelessness by moving more people into permanent housing rather than allowing them to linger indefinitely in shelters and unsheltered locations. 
47 states and the District of Columbia have participated in this trend over the last five years, growing their number of permanent housing beds. Even states and territories increased them by more than 50% over this short period of years. Nationally, the most common type of homeless assistance is permanent supportive housing. 41% of system beds are in this category, which has grown by 96% since 2007. But that's also because since 2007, the demand has grown. Just wanted to add that. That was a part of the article. Emergency shelter beds, the second most prevalent intervention, have increased by 38% since 2007. Rapid rehousing, the newest type of permanent housing intervention, is continuing along a path of rapid growth. There are 87% more beds in this category than there were five years ago. Transitional housing is the only intervention on the decline. There are 55% fewer beds in the category than there were in 2007. This shift is part of the trend towards more investment in per permanent housing solutions. Many Americans live in poverty, amounting to 38.1 million people, or 11.8% of the U.S. population. They struggle to afford necessities such as housing. In 2018, 6.5 million Americans experienced severe housing cost burden, which means they spent more than 50% of their income on housing. This marked the fourth straight year of decreases in the size of this group. However, the number of severely cost burdened Americans is still 13% higher than it was in 2007, the year the nation began monitoring homelessness data. Another measure of housing hardship is doubling up, or sharing the housing of others for economic reasons. In 2018, an estimated 4 million people were in these situations. Some of these people have fragile relationships with their hosts or face other challenges in the home, putting them at risk of homelessness. Over the last five years, this number of doubled up people has been trending downward, but is still 12% higher than it was in 2007. Over the last decade, the nation has made, hasn't made any real progress in reducing the number of Americans who are at risk of homelessness. Further, few states are realizing significant improvements. Let me restart that one. I apologize. Further, few states are realizing significant improvements in these areas. Within the category of severe housing cost burden, Colorado tops the list, but has only reduced its number by 13% since 2007. Over the same period, Colorado is also the state making the most significant progress in the doubled up category. However, its number only decreased by 34%. Most states are seeing their severe housing cost burden and doubled up numbers grow. And below they uh, basically have a syllabus of sources and methodology. And you can sign up for easy updates from inhomelessness.org, which is where I have gotten that article. Thankfully, the eviction moratorium has been uh, pushed forward by Donald Trump, so everybody at least has till January 31st. I really wouldn't put it past Biden to extend that even more. It's just the, th the thing about the moratorium is it doesn't wipe away uh, the past rent that is due. It only really builds the debt, kind of locking people into their situations. And that's why you see a lot of renters evicting people who can't afford to stay there immediately so that they can eventually get their money either by finding a renter who can't afford or who uh or just selling the the property itself
Womp, 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 womp. What an exciting episode. No videos. Oh, wait, I got one at the end, but mostly article reading. All right. So that brings me to this one anecdotal case that has been going on up in Portland, which is very hard for me to find actual news coverage. I had initially heard about it from Robert Evans from uh, Worst Year Ever, Behind the Bastards, Uprising, Why Portland. All you know, he does a lot of podcasting, a lot of journalist work. He works for Bellingcat. Now, he talked about it a few times. And as far as I know, this specific story is still ongoing. I have not found any updates, so if I am behind on this, I apologize. But I do find it very fascinating. So, this comes from OPB, which I am not sure what the acronym stands for. I just know that it is a news... Uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it's a news website, as far as I know, from uh, Portland itself. This is homegrown news here. I don't know what the initials stand for. I do know that it's in Portland. It's in Oregon is where this news is specifically coming from. And it's the best thing that I could find currently, because so far, not many people are keeping up with the story. Um, but I did, fascinatingly enough, which we will get into after this, find a video from Tim Pool talking about this situation a few weeks ago. And, uh, I went about halfway through and I was surprised at some things that he was saying. I thought, honestly, he would be outright anti against it because of the, you know, position that he had taken with Chaz Chop. Um, just not being okay with these leftists finding their own autonomous zone, creating their own country and being radical and stuff. Um, so I was really surprised at a lot of his responses, but I didn't make it through the entire video. So maybe he'll disappoint me at the end. Who knows? Um, but this article that we're going to get through here for the rest of this segment and begins now. Understanding the ongoing eviction blockade in Portland. Protesters say they want to stop a black and indigenous family from being removed from their longtime home. Protesters are in standoff with law enforcement over an eviction effort in North Portland. Barricades and improvised spike strips line the streets around a house on North Mississippi Avenue, and protesters have said they aren't leaving until their demands are met. Meanwhile, city officials and police have worried the barricaded zone could become an autonomous area without government rule, much like what happened this year in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood, i.e. CHOP, which um, I kind of watched the, de the demise of CHOP, and it's it, it was pretty upsetting. I think it was majorly de decentralized. The goals weren't 100% consensus with everybody who was occupying the zone. And eventually certain leaders started making concessions with the city more often than the city was making concessions with them. So ultimately CHOP failed pretty hard. It was a nice show of force from Democratic people, but it was ultimately... Ah, man, it was just this just flash moment of... I don't know, radicalism actually hitting the streets of America. And it seemed like a very momentous situation until about five days in deep when it just kind of seemed that the, the movement in itself was crumbling from the inside. And there's a lot of factors to that, but I think once they 
had the barriers moved that they had originally set. Once the barriers got moved, that really started changing things. And then, of course, there was four shootings. Um, and I don't think everyone was caught for those situations. I think one of them, one shooting was caught and they, they arrested them, but the other went completely unsolved. And so eventually it forced the city's hand to shut it down with police force. And that was the end of CHOP. Although I will remember it fondly. Just out of, just out of its how interesting it was. The fact that like ordinary people kicked the police out of it. Well, they didn't kick the police out of an area. The, 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 the mayor actually pulled them out. And then they just didn't allow them to come back in. It was, it was a very interesting moment. And I'm sure it won't be in the history books unless really dope people write them. So, while the standoff has sparked significant attention, the events leading to the barricades around the so-called Red House are complex. What is the Red House on Mississippi? The Red House on Mississippi is an 1800s-era home that members of the Kinney family have owned since 1955. A website devoted to their eviction fight says the family came to Portland from Arkansas and bought the house in cash because black families at the time were prevented from getting home loans. The neighborhood in North, North Portland was predominantly black for generations, but in recent years has been developed and aggressively gentrified. Former residents of the area have have hold stories of developers going door to door during the housing crisis, offering stacks of cash for home for homes. I apologize. The Kinney family is one of the few remaining black families that have been in the neighborhood since before the 2008 financial crisis. What led to the foreclosure? Members of the Kinney family took out a mortgage on the on the home to pay legal bills after their son, who goes by the name William X. Nietzsche, was arrested in 2002 for a hit-and-run collision. In 2016, their mortgage was transferred to a different firm, but the loan servicer remained the same. Then the loan servicer changed, too. Until that point, the family had been paying their mortgage on time. When the mortgage changed hands, the family said they became confused and stopped paying in order to figure out who the proper recipient was. In a January 2017 letter, the Kinneys were told to start making mortgage payments to a different company. For two months, Nietzsche said, the family received bills from two companies. At this point, court documents show multiple written communications between Nietzsche and Rushmore Loan Management Services, LLC, the new loan servicer. According to federal court documents, those communications included letters from Rushmore verifying they were the loan servicer and telling the Kinney family that it was seven payments in arrears. The mortgage was sold once again, this time to U.S. Bank Trust, and in 2018, the home was started in the foreclosure process. Why were protesters drawn to this cause? Like many cities, Portland has been extensive protests for racial justice this year. Protesters demonstrated against police brutality for more than 100 consecutive nights through the spring and summer. At times, the protests drew thousands of people. While nightly demonstrations have ended, smaller groups of racial justice protesters are still active in the city. Um, and to get a, you know an even better understanding of that, of course, I'm going to recommend uh, Robert Evans' podcast, Uprising. 
um it actually it had like a couple people in it talking about how like the police brutality that the police used against the protesters ended up radicalizing them and then they eventually found networks of other people so like the fascinating thing to me is is that no matter how much cops beat people down in the streets for protesting it actually made their coalitions and alliances stronger and they found more people to connect with it was that's so fascinating to me but anyways the article continues some of those demonstrators have rallied around the kinney family and have camped near the home since september in an effort to prevent their eviction north portland where the kinney home is located also carries significance more broadly to the city Black Portlanders have historically faced significant housing discrimination and segregation as policies that largely restricted them to buying homes in North and Northeast Portland. As the city grew into its current state, many of those same black families were forced out of their homes by skyrocketing costs and other pressures of gentrification. Until recently, the Kinneys were a family who had survived those pressures in one of the widest major cities in America. Many protesters occupying the area around the home say Portland city leaders should try to preserve the Kinney's place in the neighborhood. How have housing markets led to this conflict? There are two types of foreclosures in Oregon, judicial and non-judicial. Like the name implies, a judicial foreclosure goes through the courts. The homeowner is sued in state court and the foreclosure goes before a judge. For homeowners, a judicial foreclosure provides multiple added layers of protection. After a judicial foreclosure, homeowners have six months to buy back their home for the price paid at auction. If the home was auctioned for less than the original mortgage, this could even work to the original homeowner's benefit. Non-judicial for foreclosures, such as the one the Kinneys went through, don't involve courts. The loan servicer gives the homeowner notice of default and home loss danger. The note includes the amount of debt and a sale date, time, and place. Non-judicial foreclosures do not allow homeowners an opportunity to buy back their property after auction. After lawsuits stemming from the financial crisis halted non-judicial foreclosures, the practice is once again becoming more frequent. Banks prefer them because they are cheaper, easier, and the property isn't tied up for six months after auction to allow for the state-mandated right to of redemption. And since it is up to the loan servicer to decide which process to use, they increasingly are opting for non-judicial foreclosures. If a homeowner facing a non-judicial foreclosure wants to get the process into court, they have to sue the loan, the loan servicer and get a temporary restraining order. Over the past 15 years, as the effect that, all right, I got to pause for a second because that makes it incredibly more expensive for the person suing the loan servicer because they then have to find legal representation. Only in criminal cases are you, you have the right to an attorney. Otherwise, you gotta go get one on your own, and that costs money. Now, over the past 15 years, as the effects of the financial and housing crisis of 2008 persisted, judges have learned more about the ins and outs of the mortgage industry and become more skeptical of banks. Quote, it's judicially supervised, and in theory, the banks can't just get away with murder. Unquote, said Terry Scannell, a Portland-based attorney who specializes in complex civil litigation. Quote, there's someone watching. Unquote. The mortgage market is filled with conflicting economic interests, often at odds with the idea of keeping homeowners in their homes, according to Scannell. 
loan beneficiaries, the people who benefit when you pay your monthly mortgage payment, aren't necessarily the same people who actually send your money. That is the loan servicer. Unlike the beneficiary, loan servicers make their money by taking a small cut of the debt's unpaid principal. The bigger the outstanding balance on your mortgage, the more money they make. If you pay down your mortgage, the servicer makes less money. Scannell said the dramatic increase in North Portland property prices has put an even wider gap between homeowner incentives, paying their mortgage and keeping their home, and loan servicer incentives, who want that debt to collect. As soon as a home is in default or a foreclosure has begun, servicers can make even more money because they can charge a variety of fees. If a home is worth substantially more, wait, let me begin the sentence again. If a home is worth substantially more is, oh, all right, they obviously messed up the, there's a, there's a typo here and that's why I sound incredibly stupid. If a home is worth substantially more owned on the associated mortgage, one impact of gentrification, the servicer knows they will come out ahead. If the Kinney's case, the family owed, oh, in the Kinney's case, the family owed 112338 that, uh, geez, I am really off. In the Kinney's case, the family owed 112338 at the time of their foreclosure. The property sold in November 2018 for 260000 and is now valued at $450,000. Quote, All the economic incentives become to grab the house and foreclose, Skinnell said. Once you trigger and you're put into a foreclosure, the whole system is geared to taking that house. The only thing that will stop them is a lawsuit." Unquote. Skinnell said loan service companies can lull homeowners into believing they want to work with them to keep them in their house while discouraging people from seeking legal help. Foreclosure, he said, comes with feelings of shame and is incredibly stressful. Quote, I'd say enormous amounts of people that go through this are literally in very high levels of emotional distress and so they freeze and don't know what to do. Scannell said, and in the meantime, in a non-judicial foreclosure, the industry will send the same person 23 notices of foreclosure in the mail. I think that's done on purpose just to freak them out, unquote. Some servicers, he said, have hired psychologists to refine the system. It's a problem that has been rampant throughout North Portland, Skinnell said. And while the Kinney's case looks like it probably could have been resolved early if they'd had a lawyer, he said there are countless other families experiencing the same or worse predatory foreclosures throughout the city. Now, why didn't the family resolve this in court? Asked the article. And it says, The Kinney family never retained a lawyer. The family said, uh, the family said is, sorry, it's, I think it's a typo or I'm really illiterate. The family said is, <laughs> um, yeah, the family has struggled to find an attorney who would take its case. One family member, Nietzsche, told OPB they contacted a number of attorneys and were turned down. Nietzsche ended up representing the family himself. Since the foreclosure, the family, still choosing to represent themselves, has filed lawsuits in Oregon State and federal courts. They lost repeatedly. Quote, If you look at this case in terms of what a just system would do versus what the law is doing to these people, it's a stark difference. Unquote, 
said Jesse Marithu, a Portland-based civil rights attorney. Marithu said he sees situations like this often when he reviews civil rights cases of prisoners who represent themselves in court. Quote, they try to make their arguments sound legal, and that's almost always a mistake, he said. And they end up filing things that aren't following the rules the court has because they aren't lawyers. For the lawyers on the other side, it's really easy to just run circles around people who are doing that, unquote. Adding to the legal trouble, some of Nietzsche's court filings contain anti-government, sovereign citizen arguments that say he is not subject to U.S. law. Aye, aye, aye. So the article asks, what is sovereign citizen ideology? The sovereign citizen movement in the United States encompasses a wide array of beliefs but largely centers on false legal arguments that the federal government is illegitimate or doesn't have jurisdiction over a person. The movement is often associated with militias and far-right groups such as the Bundy family, but tax evaders and people with less political motivations also used sovereign citizen arguments in court. Nietzsche's filings point in particular to his belief in Moorish sovereign citizenship, an offshoot of the movement that grew in numbers in the mid-1990s. According to the Anti-Defamation League, emerges black identity with sovereign citizen ideology. Court filings and statements by Nietzsche show that he has at times filed criminal complaints against judges and other officers of the court, sought citizens' arrests, and cited his indigenous heritage as reasons to oppose court rulings that supported the foreclosures process on the Kinney's home. I just, you know, honestly, I, I, I want to give him credit for giving his best try and defending his family. Because who wouldn't? You know, if you can't afford a lawyer, you fuck it. Just just do it. Just try. Try to, try to keep your family in your home. Especially since he has possibly the weight of his... Um, hit and run in 2006 kind of you know them taking out the mortgage there's a lot of personal stuff going on here and unfortunately Nietzsche swung above his weight but it also says here closing out the article for some reason with this Nietzsche's social media accounts contain posts that also refer to QAnon and other unfounded conspiracy theories oh that wasn't the end of the article thankfully um, but somehow, you know, his misunderstanding of, I don't know, his, his difference in worldview uh, seems to have hurt him in the long run here uh, with the Moorish sovereign citizenship. Um, yeah, it's, it's very strange. I get where you can try to make the case of sovereign citizen ideology, but like right now it's not going to, no, it's not going to help you at all. Um there was an interesting philosopher that I went through today, taking in some brief understandings, and I believe his name... Oh, man, where did it go? His name, his name, his name. He's very famous. Yes. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who uh, questioned the social contract. And I think in a lot of ways... Um, citizens are allowed to question the legitimacy of their government, and I think at every moment their government should be justifying their existence. Um, but we're not at that point. The United States is going to be a nation whether we... When we're born, it's here. That's the way it goes. 
And so I just, I, I find it very interesting that he tried to um, put that out there and that I'm a sovereign citizen and that I don't have to um, obey these, uh, this eviction notice, but really that honestly makes you weaker in, in, in the long run, because then you absolve yourself of all the rights afforded by the constitution and the state constitution. So, um, he tried, he tried. Now the article continues, isn't there an eviction moratorium? Like many places in the country, Oregon is under a statewide eviction moratorium due to the COVID-19 pandemic. That moratorium prevents landlords from evicting tenants during the pandemic, but also does not absolve those renters from owing back payments. The courts have allowed the Kinney's eviction process to move forward, largely because the home was foreclosed in 2018, well before the pandemic began. Still, protesters have argued that evicting a family in the middle of a pandemic is cruel and potentially life-threatening. Now, there was a bit of extra that went on in this situation, and I shall read it from this article here. It says, journalists were attacked in the barricaded zone around the home this week. Is it safe there? Protesters have been regulating who can enter the area, banning anyone from taking photos or video, including pedestrians and neighbors out walking. Some have enforced that policy through violence, though most confrontations have been verbal. One journalist was assaulted on a Tuesday while trying to enter the area. Protesters surrounded a TV crew from KATU with umbrellas to prevent them from filming. One protester grabbed a phone out of the hand of a KATU journalist, smashing it on the ground with their heel. When the journalist went to retrieve her phone, the protester stepped on her hand. And now I'm starting to begin to see why there's an issue with getting more information on this. So that's interesting. I did watch one news report that came uh, from another news channel that was in Portland and speaking on a specific assault, because um, it just says one journalist was assaulted Tuesday while trying to enter the area and then moves on to a next situation where protests um, obstructed the journalist. But um, a member from the protest movement had said that the people who had done the assault would not be allowed back. Now, how much there is truth to that, I don't know. And it is really unfortunate that that level of escalation has already happened, honestly. And also, too, I I would have to understand what the specific beef is with KATU to not allow journalism to be prevalent in this. Because, honestly, when you have a movement, you want as much media attention as you can get. So I find it very interesting that this seems to be some kind of blackout zone. But... Moving on, people who live stream video on social media are told to stand in a designated area and they are prevented from walking around or live streaming the inside of the barricade zone. Police are being prevented from entering the area as well. In a statement Wednesday, Portland police said they were concerned about fire and emergency medical services being able to access the occupied zone if needed. And they said thing about the Chaz Chop situation, but the fascinating thing about the Chaz Chop situation is that the people who were there were actually, had gotten, uh, the people who were shot at Chaz Chop, they had gotten them to the hospital quicker than the police actually even responded. Um, so, I just... You know, it's an excuse for them to say, oh, we must protect and serve. Um, but really, you know, if they're allowed further into the zone, they're more likely to uh, serve an eviction. So moving on, what are people who live in the neighborhood saying? And I just want to highlight here that this is like all of these coming from any news website at any time. 
no matter who's reporting it, left, right, middle, up, down, it doesn't matter. It's always going to be cherry-picked quotes. And it would be great if, like, we could get an all-gas-no-breaks in there where he literally... Well, he also cherry-picks some stuff, you know, to be honest. He's a content creator, but it would be great if we could just get, a, like, a long-ass video of just people talking to a microphone about the situation. So what are people saying in the neighborhood? Quote, It's a mess down here. It looks like a war zone, said Joel Miller, who lives across the street from the Kinney's home. If I was the mayor, I'd come down and talk to them. Interesting. Miller described the protesters as very respectful and said he hadn't had issues with them since they began camping in the area in September. Quote, they clean up after themselves, but they do play their music until five in the morning, he said. But I respect them because they stand up for what they believe in. Unquote. Some neighbors' vehicles are blocked in and are unable to move because of multiple barricades. Other neighbors said they have had their trash cans stolen, and many neighbors have Black Lives Matter signs in their windows. I'm not sure why that's 100% relevant right now. I guess because it's a black and indigenous family. But like, also, too, um, I think the, the overall focus here is uh, housing and that being a human right. So I, I get why they added it, but also you didn't have to. But anyways, the police boycotted this area completely, said Miller. The one, the one neighbor that they asked about anything. <laughs> it says, what is the neighborhood saying? And they have one quote from, uh, what was his name? James, Joel Miller. Okay. Joel Miller, the neighborhood of Portland. <laughs> All right. Um, the, the article continues. Are the city and Kenny family working on a resolution? And this article, I think, is dated December 14th. As I am speaking, it is December 30th, so of course, significantly behind on this story. Now, it says, Both sides have said they want to find a peaceful solution to the blockade. However, members of the Kinney family have expressed anger at law enforcement, who they said damaged or destroyed property inside the home during the eviction raid Tuesday. In a statement Thursday, they also said vehicles have antagonized the perimeter of the blockade. Videos posted online show people throwing fireworks inside at protesters. The Kinneys have criticized the Portland Police Bureau for putting out statements calling the eviction blockade violent. Quote, Known white supremacists continue to illegally brandish arms without consequences, the family said in a statement. We refuse to be characterized as a violent movement when our leadership is rooted in an Afro-Indigenous ethic of land reclamation. Unquote. The family said it was in communication with the mayor's office and is trying to find a solution that will allow them to keep the home. And that is where the article ends. One update that I did find is that there was a GoFundMe fundraiser uh, that has allocated about $300,000 for the family to buy back their home, which at the beginning of this article early on is being priced at $450,000 or is it sixty? Let's see. I think it was 450, but I it could be 460. Somewhere between 450 and 460. There it is. It's 450. So they buy, they have about $150,000 to go. Because that is the price that the home the current homeowner is willing to sell the the home back to. Um so that's fantastic. That's great. I'm glad that, you know, the family in need, he's not going to discount it. <laughs> 
<laughs> I want that shit full price. Um, and then we have the Tim Pool video. Getting into Tim Pool stuff about this situation. He covered it weeks ago, and uh, you know, I was a little bit interested to see what the what the right wing do. You know, what 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 are they saying? And so we're going to get into that after this short break, because you guessed it, we hit an hour. So much content, we hit an hour. I apologize for the monotone, solemn boredom that I conveyed in the earlier parts of this podcast, but um, the muster is not here today. It's not here. I, I, I'll find it somewhere. I think I left it in the couch or something, but it'll be back. But until then, enjoy this slight break while I uh, restart the program so I don't go over my gigs. Shouts out to the Portum Rebellion. We're back with more I'm so fucking tired talks news. Oh, well, we got to push through it, baby. We got to push through it like a baby, baby. All right. Enough of my whackness. Now that we're back and we got a little understanding of the Kinney's situation merely from an article. Uh, I think it's time that I read a quick article. One more before we get into Timmy Pool. Uh, where did where did it go? Where where did it go? This one comes from NYU, and so it's pretty pointless for me to think that I can convince any right wingers of anything. But nonetheless, we will go with this, and it is called the Twelve Myths, Twelve Biggest Myths about Homelessness in America, which I just want to cover because recently, you know, just before that that slight break, we went over. Uh, the Kinney's specific situation on how they reached foreclosure in 2018, beginning in 20 in, in 2006 by pulling out a loan to pay off, to pay for their mortgage, and uh, the situation with William X Nietzsche, their son. But let's just read quickly these 12 myths before we get into Pim Tool. Um, one, most are mentally ill. Decades of epidemiological research reveals that one-third, at most, have a serious mental illness. The institutionalization or closure of mental hospitals was initially believed to be a prime cause of homelessness, but this occurred well before the sharp increase in the 1980s. Of course, there's much more information to do. This is only a very small surface level to get into, but I just want to get it out there before we talk about more of this specific situation. 
So, and it's funny too, because I was, you know, hoping to find, maybe there's some Fox news about this, you know, uh, of Portland or wasn't, but there was videos from last year, uh, covering like five or six different cities and their homeless situation. And in at least three of them, because I watched three, uh, it's all about drug addiction. It's all about drug addiction. And uh, they're never really talking too much about the material conditions that kind of lead people into homelessness, even though Tucker Carlson did acknowledge that in a lot of the places where homelessness is prevalent, there's also a large amount of income inequality, because of course there is, there's a lot of wealthy people in Seattle. And, you know, when you have large amounts of wealth, it's, it's a lot of juxtaposition of the um, lower income happening at the same time and also seattle has a lot of different laws and situations going on where it's a bit more laissez-faire with the homelessness now they're not necessarily providing a whole bunch of help but they're also not going out of their way to jail them or burden them with more of uh state violence i guess but um yeah homelessness is a very unique situation very complex and i don't think we can fix it overnight but if we don't talk about it then it, it goes quietly into the night. So, number two, the majority abuse drugs and alcohol. It is believed that only about 20 to 40 percent of homeless have a substance abuse issue. In fact, abuse is rarely the sole cause of homelessness and more often is a response to it because living on the street puts the person in frequent contact with users and dealers. So, yeah, become homeless, find drugs. Number three, they're dangerous and violent. Homeless persons are far more likely to be the victims of violence than the perpetrators. Of course, some homeless individuals may commit, at, commit acts of violence beyond self-defense, but such acts rarely affect, affect the non-homeless individuals they encounter. To put it another way, any violence by homeless persons is either self-defense or due to the rare violent perpetrator who preys on other homeless people. Non-homeless need to understand this. Man, I feel like this would really piss off right-wingers because they just, you know, I read those tweets earlier. They think that these people are outright trash. They think these people are outright pieces of shit. How are you going to convince them with an NYU article? Really can't. But of course, I provide these very surface-level points only for people to do more research. Because if I were to do that here, we would be here for literally all day, and unfortunately, I don't have the means to do so. So I hope that people take this and fucking run with it. But number four myth, they're criminals. Homeless persons are more likely to have criminal justice intervention. However, this is primarily because many of their daily survival activities are criminalized, meaning that they might be given a summons or arrested for minor offenses, such as trespassing, littering, or loitering. Number five, bad choices led to their homelessness. Everyone makes mistakes. But the descent into homelessness is not necessarily the direct result of choices. Far more often, a sudden illness or an accident, losing one's job or falling into debt leads to eviction, or doubling up with family or friends becomes untenable. Number six, they prefer the freedom of the life on the street. There is no evidence to support this notion that homeless persons are service resistant. Since housing first began in New York City in 1992 at the nonprofit Pathways to Housing Incorporated, it became clear that the offer of immediate access to independent housing with support services is welcome and accepted by most homeless. People on the street often reject the option of crowded, unsafe shelters, not housing in general.
Number seven, they spend all their money on drugs and alcohol. Interviews with street homeless persons show that most of their money goes to buying food and amenities such as socks, hygiene products, and bottled water. Although some do spend money on alcohol or drugs, the same can be said of anyone. Number eight, they just need to get a job. A significant portion of homeless people do have jobs. They just can't afford to pay rent. Some receive disability income due to physical or mental problems, but still can't afford rent. For those wanting to work, a common refrain among those interviewed by the, my research team, the complications of applying for a job with no address, no clean clothes, no place to shower, and the stigma of being homeless or having a criminal record makes such individuals far less competitive in the low-wage job market. Number nine, those are not part of our the homeless are not part of our community. Surveys have shown 70 to 80% of homeless persons are from the local area or live there for a year or longer before becoming unhoused. Number 10, they live in unsanitary conditions because they don't care. Living outdoors means having no regular place for bodily functions, to dispose of trash, to store food safely, or to bathe. A homeless person who cares has few alternatives. Our research shows that lacking access to a shower is one of the more humili humiliating aspects of being homeless. Number 11. The legal right to shelter is the best way to end homelessness. Currently, shelter construction and maintenance absorb the vast majority of the $3 billion spent early, oh, oops, sorry, yearly by the city of New York to address homelessness. Meanwhile, building affordable housing, the purview of state and local authorities that is left up to private developers, has not kept pace. Thus, the right to shelter can, in practice, displace the right to housing. And the twelfth and final myth. In coastal cities with low rental housing vacancy rates, it is impossible to find enough housing for homeless individuals and families. New York City has a vacancy rate of 3.6% of an estimated 2.2 million rental units in the city. This means 79,000 are vacant. This, this number is greater than the approximately 61,000 persons labeled homeless in the city. It means that the argument that we, quote, simply do not have enough existing housing, unquote, should be examined more closely. So, just wanted to read those off. Get in your city's Get, get in your own city's uh, research and development. Look it up. Find it out. And have these conversations so that hopefully one day, uh, as I believe, housing, shelter, is a fundamental human right. And everybody should have access to it. Equal of opportunity is what that is. Micro level. What's going on? So, you heard it. It's him. It's Tim Pool time. Oh, boy. Oh boy. All this talk of macro level civil war type conflict and lawsuits, it's getting crazy. And we got to talk about the micro level, what's going on on the ground in terms of individuals rejecting state authority. Several months ago, when the riots reached their peak, I asked whether or not the attorney general of Oregon suing the federal government saying you have no authority to enforce the laws surrounding your own property. I wondered if that was the start of some kind of civil war because many states were supporting Oregon. Well, <laughs> now we're at the point where, okay, revised numbers, my friends. You have 24 Democratic states on one side saying Joe Biden is president and 20 states on the other saying, no, Donald Trump is president. Okay, now, now hold on. That's not specifically what. 
I like how he starts out this video with like talking about the election results as if like this couldn't just have its own segment, but he's also kind of like leading into like, well, I'm covering this because you know, we need to take a break from all the election stuff. So it's time we get some small, small news. What they're saying, but they may as well be because what these 20 states suing these, these four states, these Democrat states are saying, or the swing states, is that the elector, the, the elector should be chosen by the state legislators and the votes are all bunk. Now, here's big news. Texas has responded to the four states they, they filed a, a leave to complain against. So we are officially at the point where we are now waiting patiently and in sheer suspense for the Supreme Court to announce if they will grant leave to file a complaint and we will be moving forward. <laughs> yeah, you can tell this video is old because the Supreme Court denied it. SCOTUS could just be like, GTFO, y'all. So while we're sitting here did. desperately waiting for an answer, something's happening on the ground. The second autonomous zone, well, maybe not really the second because there were a bunch of other autonomous zones, but you probably recall the Chaz, the cap. There wasn't really that many autonomous zones either. There were a lot of failed attempts. I, in fact, I think Portland tried to start one shortly after and just couldn't get the barricades right. So, um, yeah. Little Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, where all these far leftists put up barricades, seized a bit of land, and then, you know, I basically harassed everybody and a ton of people died. <laughs> they actually did. There were armed groups patrolling the Chaz or the CHOP, whatever they end up calling it. Uh, harassing people is one way to look at it. The, uh, one group that I do remember being there was the John Brown Gun Club, uh, named after the abolitionist John Brown, um, who were holding checkpoints to check everybody coming through. Um, and I, you know, I'm not really a hundred percent down with having armed individuals, um, you know, doing checkpoints. It's pretty sketchy to me and kind of reminds me of a country that is at civil war. But the unfortunate thing is, is that when you have a area with cops removed in it, I guess people are going to need some protection. And unfortunately, even with the John Brown club gun club there, there were still people shot. So, um, it's, yeah, it's really unfortunate. I, I don't like the framing of it, uh, that he did either. But um, just wanted to get a little bit of clarification there. And they even killed some kids, some teenagers who were just joyriding, pumping 300 rounds into this vehicle, thinking it was, I guess, white supremacists staging an attack because people are paranoid and delusional. Even though there was tons of threats, but I, you know, I, yeah, that was, that was, that was horrific. And I think that was when, uh, that's when CHOP was officially over. Because, yeah, it seemed to have gone completely out of control at that point, especially, yeah, it, there's no justifying that necessarily. Of course, uh, the, the car was alleged to be, you know, running towards the barricades to, you know, uh, who knows do what. But, um, it, yeah, unfortunately, teenagers lost their lives in, in, that, in that situation. And, yeah, CHOP was then forcefully shut down by Seattle police. So, my friends... Civil war is the discussion. The unfortunate thing is, though, is that, of course, he really wants to equate the idea that leftists killed those kids for no reason whatsoever. And um, I'm not saying that it, you know, the killing was justified. I'm just saying that the paranoia was because they had been receiving a lot of death threats and there were shootings prior to that situation. Discussion. And everybody imagines some movie-like scenario because they don't know 
what history really is. Let me explain something to you. I was on the ground during the revolution, the second revolution in Egypt. I was in Egypt during the second revolution, and it was only a few thousand people in Tahrir Square protesting. I mean, several thousand, not saying it was small or anything, but everybody believes that in order for something to happen, there's got to be like I mentioned in the previous segment, Anderson Cooper going on TV and saying, ladies and gentlemen, this country is in civil war. That's not going to happen. What's going to happen is a president's going to try to arrest a general. Hey, that already happened. I think they actually did arrest Flynn, try to put him in prison. <laughs> so again, he wasn't even he wasn't a military general at that point. He wasn't working for the military. He, he was an advisor to the president and he got arrested for lying to the FBI. That's not a coup attempt. That's a guy breaking the law and off the macro stuff. Like, like we're, we're three minutes in and every bit of context he gives is just out of it, just out of context and just muddled, muddled AF. Wow. wow. Up down to the micro stuff. And so far, it hasn't been ground. anything about the situation that, like, the reason why I clicked on this video, none of it is about that. We have something really, really interesting. They're calling it the Red House Autonomous Zone, or the RAS. Okay. This is interesting. I like RAS. Because I don't completely <laughs> disagree with the, the, the leftists here staging this uh, revolt, this, this protest. Now, I do agree. <laughs> revolt? <laughs> Okay, sure, sure. But like that's that's incendiary language to like really get that right winger base like I got to stop those leftists from over overthrowing my country. That's that's incendiary language. Agree with the streets of rage as the sun calls it. Antifa protesters attack cop cars as they set up new Portland autonomous zone to block black families eviction. It's a black and indigenous family that lives in this house. They've been there since the 1950s. They owned the house, but they took out a title loan, it's my understanding, on the house or a mortgage on the house, meaning they went to the bank and said, we've been here for a really long time. We need money because we're falling on hard times. We want to put, you know, our house up as collateral, get a loan. It's basically how it works. That's my understanding. It may have just been like a remortgage. So they got equity out of the house, but they have to pay that back to the bank. It wasn't. They used no. that to live off of. No, none of that was uh, 100% true. We had gone over uh, where they had gotten their loan from. Uh, I apologize. Let me go back here for a second. All right. All right. Scroll up. Scroll up. Scroll up. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do
That bank is now losing that money because they're not paying back the loan. And the bank says, we need to make up some of our losses. Now, the bank can survive if they don't get back one house, but the bank won't survive and the system won't function if everybody refuses to pay. So they enforce this action. It goes to foreclosure. A man saw the foreclosure and bought the house. The banks trying to make their money back say, okay, this guy's now offering to sell the house back to the family at cost. And this is really cool, actually. The left has actually fundraised just about enough to buy the family's house. That's actually kind of awesome. Why couldn't they just do that in the first place? Why do you need to be fighting with cops and attacking cars? Well, let me- Because the family would have been evicted before they were able to make that money. Like the protests began, block the eviction process, and they've been getting the money since then. Let me tell you something. I actually am not going to completely rag on Antifa this time around. While I don't agree with- Again, and they, they always equate it to Antifa, but there's a specific uh, housing organization that is a part of this. But like, they want to use Antifa because, of course, that's that homogenous boogeyman that we can all point at and say, that's the bad guy. Um, yeah, it's it, I can't remember who exactly it is. I thought I had seen- uh, No, that's, that's Seattle. Um, I can't remember their names. I can't remember their names. I'm so, I'm so sorry. Um, but in Seattle with the motel situation, I think it was the to Tacoma housing project that was doing it. And here, I'm sure it, you know, they might be anti-fascist, but it's not an Antifa group like Rose City Antifa, who may be a part of the protest themselves, but like just saying Antifa protesters, um, that, yeah, that just makes it a much easier bad guy to point a finger at. The far left. And like I said, in any normal circumstance, I'd be like, dude, if you take out a loan and you falter and you can't find a solution, evictions happen. I don't like the idea of booting people out of their homes so somebody can make an investment, but it's an imperfect system. And there's there. But he's also OK with like the housing system as it is, as the banks loan out money to uh, people to buy, you know, own their house, but also they have interest rates, which then like increase the amount of money that they have to give back. So it's not necessarily the exact value of the home. It's that little scrape off the top that allows them to make the profit. So like, yeah, he's he, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm for free housing, like just give people housing. And at least we have an equal opportunity there. Real challenges here. I generally am against outright evictions. And I, I, I personally won't go anywhere near foreclosed properties. I won't rent. I won't buy. I don't have anything to do with it. Not that I'm like a big buyer of properties anyway. But let me tell you, there's one big reason here. And I think y'all agree, will, will agree with me. You know why this family can't pay back their bills? COVID lockdowns from these Democratic governors. Who is able to make money and pay their bills? It's been a year. Of course, people can't pay their bills. Now, I don't know if it's a, that's exactly why they're not paying their mortgage, but typically it's like, I don't know, three or four months, six months, maybe you'll go to foreclosure relatively quickly if you're not paying your mortgage back. It's been almost a year. I am not surprised this family is struggling to pay back the mortgage when the governors of all of these states have taken away our ability to go out and work over dubious science. I mean, it's yeah, he's he's flipping this to be that anti lockdown narrative um, when this specific situation stretches back uh, much farther than that. Um, but of course, like, you know, during that as well, it's not going to help. You know, they, they're not going to have a great time trying to um, get that 
uh, money under COVID because reduced hours, hard to find jobs. Um, I don't even think Oregon has had that many lockdowns. Like that's that's another thing here. But um, PNW Youth Liberation Front, which was formed around the time of the George Floyd protests, the hundred days in Portland, um, said here, and I'm I'm just saying because I can't find the specific. I guess there's one right here that says Red House on Mississippi, which is a specific. Uh, Twitter account people can follow but PNW Youth Liberation Front is uh, another activist group out in Portland and they said free hot breakfast cooking for everyone at hashtag Red House come on down yeah yeah what a violent scene uh, I'm just gonna go to that Twitter real quick just out of curiosity because I still yeah I can't really find if there's another organization that had really started this, but it seems like a new one has started called the Red House on Mississippi. So this actually ended up creating its own kind of organization, but maybe this is only a small time, uh, you know, uh, movement Twitter account. Um, but if you click their link, they have uh, videos on Instagram Live covering certain situations. There's the GoFundMe. Um, they have other stuff to keep up with. Yeah, so there's a link to that on their Twitter, Red House on Mississippi, at R-H-O-N Mississippi. So find that on Twitter if you'd like. And the police have been enforcing the draconian lockdowns, causing mass suffering and stripping, of the, stripping away the whites' rights of uh, individuals. <laughs> Slip. <laughs> so now White. we have a bunch of cops <laughs> trying to come in and evict someone from their home during a pandemic when the government has shut everything down. And you know what I say? I say, oh, hell no. Nah, sorry. Like I mentioned, I may be a, a centrist, you know. So what I'm saying is I'm very surprised that like Tim Pool and me would actually agree on that. But the thing is, though, is that we probably wouldn't agree if there wasn't a pandemic going on. So um, COVID really uniting the country kind of sort of not really. Oh, enlightened centrist, whatever, when it comes to evictions in normal circumstance. Again, I'm not a big fan of booting poor people out of their homes, but we got to figure out a, a solution to this. There's nonprofits. I worked. I actually worked for a nonprofit helping the homeless. OK, so this is something that matters to me. I, I don't wonder, now I'm genuinely curious of whether or not he thinks that everybody has a right to shelter or if that it should continue being in the in the private sector. Like, should we continue having private housing when public housing is another alternative solution? Of course, it's going to cost money. But the thing is, though, is that there's a myriad of ways that we can increase governmental revenue. I don't like the idea of anti- Maybe taxing the rich. For fighting cops. I really don't like autonomous zones because you see people die, like in Seattle. But we've got an actual issue here. So I'll put it this way. I actually, for the most part, disagree with what they're doing, setting up barriers and, you know, throwing bricks at cops and attacking cop cars. Not a fan. They've occupied much more than just this house. Check it out. Here's a photo from Andy No. He tweets, the Antifa. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just like, I'm laughing really hard because I opened this with the, the responses that I had gotten from Andy No followers. And honestly, like, I don't know 100% now if this is the true zone, because that is a hell of a lot of zone to try and keep police out of. That is massive. That is huge. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the, the, the validity of this, but uh, with that road that's on the bottom half, I guess there's really only, 
a couple entrances, so they might be able to get significant amount of uh checkpoints to um do that. But it's yeah, that's that's very 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 interesting. But I don't trust a single thing that comes out of Andy knows tweets uh without verified research first. So unfortunately, I'm gonna just have to take Andy knows word and Tim Pool's word for right now. But I'm just gonna assume that there's probably something I'm missing. Red House Autonomous Zone. I guess it continues came from to the Oregonian, but here's the thing too, is that the Oregonian is also super anti-left. So uh, this is another right-wing coalition reporting on a left-wing movement. So there's definitely going to be some out-of-context misinformation spreading. Grow as it is now in its fourth day. Militants continue to build new border checkpoints further and further out to buffer the area. The zone is now three blocks long. This is why I say I am mostly in disagreement. I think the people are exploiting the, the eviction to take territory for an autonomous zone. I don't think they're actually here to defend this family. You know why? I think like that that's always a thing too is that they always like claim that the left has a like ulterior motive to anything and everything that they do because they want power, they want control, they want to rule your life. Um and I think if, you know, the the the, the Kinney family is allowed to live in their in their in their uh, abode, then everybody's probably going to go home. According to the actual news from Oregon Live, They've actually raised $250,000 to buy the home back in a GoFundMe titled Save the Kinney Family Home. And this, in my opinion, one of the coolest things ever. This is fantastic. So to all of those on the left who have fundraised this money to buy the house to defend this family, especially during the pandemic, you guys rock and you have my utmost respect. Mutual aid, motherfucker. Direct action, motherfucker. That's leftist tactics, and he's praising them until it gets to a point where it it works against his either agenda or narrative. Then it's time to demonize again. But um, yeah, of course, people raising money for a family is uh, you can't condemn that. That's that, that's bad optics. To those who are expanding this autonomous zone well beyond the confines of this house after they've already raised the money, I think is absolutely ridiculous and wrong. They haven't raised enough money, though. So until the enough money is raised, then the, the family still faces eviction. That's, that's what we're looking at. That's where I will clash with the left on this issue. Another really important question gets raised, however, with what Antifa is doing. And I got to say, I love this question in response to Andy No from Desiree Thinking. She says, I'm still curious about the affected property owners in these cases, why Antifa wants its own property rights to be respected. And if this is not stolen land and conquest, does the moral narrative behind the action change what is occurring? Because that's really easy to justify. All right. On that, let me slow down. And of course, we got Joel Miller's input from the article that I read, and he said that everybody who's there is really respectful. Um, so to answer her question so far, they're doing OK. This house is owned by the bank, not by the people who live there. They effectively sold it. That's also not true because the guy, there, there's there's already a property owner now. I don't know their name, but um, he bought it from the, the, the bank when it went up for foreclosure. So when they accepted money from the bank as a loan with the house's collateral, the house doesn't belong to them. What Antifa is doing by surrounding it and king at the authorities is effectively colonizing this land. They're raising money to buy property. 
Most of these people would argue, and I mean, not all of them, that private property doesn't exist. Some of them would argue a home is personal property, while others would argue, no, you can't own land. All right, you figure it out, socialists. But here's what I find just uh, uh, absolutely fascinating. The leftists fighting for land that doesn't belong to them. And then you can see they're now surrounding other homes that have nothing to do with this. What's up? No, I'm okay. Raising money for these people who are going to lose their home is awesome. I love it. We can't do it for everybody because resources are finite, but it's really cool that this family is going through hard times. I blame- So the nation should fund a public housing project. That's actually a way to go about it. Now we'll keep the 54 million who are facing eviction from the COVID-19 pandemic uh, in their homes as well. Same so. these, these feckless governors in these Democrat states for the ridiculous COVID lockdowns, which are, again, not based on science. Part of the responsibility falls on those who they keep are. voting they for are these based people. On science. Well, here's what you get. You know, I'm actually impressed with the strength of this autonomous zone. It's actually much stronger than the one in Chaz. But again, this to me doesn't seem like they're actually trying to help people. I think there are some people on the left who have actually fought really hard to help this family avoid eviction. There have been anti-eviction activists who have raised money in the past and done great jobs of helping people keep their homes. I love that. Again, I used to be a director at a homeless shelter. And if I could get people to, to fundraise to protect the homes of individuals and prevent people from becoming homeless, totally on board for it. In fact, I think it'd be really cool to start a nonprofit foundation that seeks to cover the mortgage bills of some people to keep from the uh, keep the bank from foreclosing to make sure of some people. Uh, a nonprofit which has a very finite amount of resources to actually help and protect people when honestly like i'm just going to keep repeating it like housing is a fundamental human right like people cannot survive without it and it's weird to put it behind a paywall make sure we don't make more homeless people especially That's, when which is funny because they put up this quote or actually the definition of gatekeeping it says the activity of controlling and usually limiting general access to something so in a way, we're gatekeeping shelter from people. It's down to hard times for an individual. This story hits two important points. For one, sometimes people fall on hard times. And it's, and it's messed up that I think we make a homeless family because of it, especially when they've been here since the 50s. I can respect the fact that, they, you know, like I said, they effectively sold the property with this loan, assuming they couldn't pay it back. But also during the pandemic, that's a line that I absolutely reject. If the governor of the states wants to enact these rules, you cannot boot people from their homes. And that is something that we both agree on. Unfortunately, the courts in Portland, or I guess in Oregon, and federal courts say that, well, they were foreclosed on before the pandemic, so get them out. And that's the situation that they're looking at. And I can't necessarily, I agree with Tim. It's not, you know, it's not morally just to kick people out during a pandemic, increasing their likelihood of catching coronavirus and furthering them down the pipe hole that is poverty. I know it's tough. Pipe so hole, one of the big challenges line. we've had throughout the pandemic <laughs> is landlords and the left saying landlord isn't a job, they're leeches. And I'm like, listen, if you don't pay your rent, how do they pay for the building managers for maintenance? How do they you pay their taxes, pay the water bill? Which is funny because they don't all do that. And like it, I, I rent a house and the maintenance is up to us. The water bill is up to us. The electricity bill is up to us. Um, 
and you know the i think the maintenance at least like the like if there's something seriously broken then they'll come down and and fix that and so far i don't think we've occurred a cost from that but it also varies depending on what state what state you live in but as far as like overall maintenance of the house itself we have to keep up with that talking about the lawn or any damages that we we may cause um so yeah i'm i don't know the, the the thing is too is like you know without landlords how are you gonna get those paid for and of course then we have to get into a broader aspect of like moving from a what can you offer me economy to a mutual aid economy which you know it's i don't know that's so theoretical and even out of my depth that i'm not going to get into it so more it's research not, is it's needed. not easy evictions however i think are a disaster it is. So, I mean, I'm definitely going to try and pick up more Peter Kropotkin, who did a pretty extensive writing on mutual aid, and hopefully my understanding will come back better. It is a, it is a powder keg ready to blow. People are being told they can't work, and everything they own is being stripped away from them. When I see this, I tell you, rock in a hard place. Rock and a hard place. I do not like Antifa throwing bricks at cop cars and taking territory. And like I said, look at this. They're, they're, they're expanding well beyond what they need to to protect this home. I also don't like the idea that this great reset is stripping away what everyone. I think the size of the occupied area, as they put it, is to actually like have as many people as they can. If they had it just confined to that small little section where the red house is, which does have like some unowned land there next to it, less than an acre, well be like well less than an, an acre of land next to it would only fit maybe a hundred or a couple hundred people. But with that amount of area right there, they could fit thousands. One owns. See, this is where it gets interesting. This is where the populace, I think, might actually find some agreement. You take a look at what that lady said at Pineapple Hill in, in Los Angeles. Remember this viral video? She comes out. She's got a restaurant. She's got an outdoor dining area. Governor Gavin Newsom in California says, too bad you can't be open. Right next to it, 50 feet away, Hollywood Film Production Company sets up the exact same thing. Gazebo tents, picnic benches. That is okay. The woman said, everything I own is being taken from me. And I say, I say, F that, that's messed up. The Great Reset, the World Economic Forum put out this video saying in 2030, you will own nothing and you will be happy. This, what we are seeing with the eviction of this family, in my opinion, like Eastern Buddhist philosophy right there. Um, but like, as far as I know, certain left ideology does say that people are allowed to own possessions. It just reaches to a certain extent. Like, are people really allowed to, um, you know, own certain sections of the land? Like, is there at a certain point we have to allow so much public space? And then also too, like, are people really allowed to own water? Are people allowed to own electricity, a public, a, a, a utility that has become almost necessary for, uh, sustaining life in society? So, um, yeah, there's always, there's questions of private property. Um, but I think the, for a lot of leftists, it is the ultimate elimination of all uh, private property. Um, but, it, you know, there's still going to be this upholding of um, 
private possessions i'm sure it's just you know we're now we're dealing in some seriously theoretical stuff because we live in a country that uh just holds the rights to private property so high and that's why this family is getting evicted by a bank that owns the family who the bank will not live in the house they're merely trying to make money laps with the COVID lockdown destroying people's lives, taking away their ability to support themselves. And then the banks come in and these and the government comes in and the private corporations come in and they take what you own. I say no. I'll point out the hypocrisy of Antifa defending private property. But hey, you know, there's there's big picture and the uh, defending the right to shelter. There's a little picture. There's macro level. There's micro level. And I'll put it this way. When someone does something good, I will praise them for it. When someone does something bad, I will criticize them for it. And here, we got a perfect story. Except he did a really bad job criticizing Proud Boy violence. He did say that he's not okay with all violence, but he didn't really necessarily say that the Proud Boys were out of hand. Um, he kind of implied that since Antifa's out there, we kind of need Proud Boys, even though leftists will argue since there's Proud Boys, we really need Antifa. So you just have this endless loop of possible violence and... He's uh, pretty bad at actually denouncing that kind of stuff. And, you know, from the beginning of this video, he was talking about the ideas of a civil war coming. And he does that in so many videos. Like, you have to wonder how much he actually desires Americans killing each other over a bunch of bullshit. Really. Storm. Surrounding this three-block radius and grabbing more and more autonomous-owned territory is exploiting those people who are risking losing their home. That is bad. And that should be condemned. Totally. But that's a baseless accusation. Like, you're claiming people are doing something that they're not. I am sure that if the family gets to keep their home, or if the family is evicted from it, everybody's going to leave that area and move on to the next project. They're not trying to overtake it and create a new Portland. But raising money through a fundraiser to buy the home, to stave off the extraction of value from the poor and the working class in this country, epic. Absolutely epic. This GoFundMe, and I'm not a big fan of GoFundMe because they're super hyper-partisan, but hey, man, <laughs> you raised $268,000 by launching this. And they say in the midst of a deadly global pandemic, while most of the state was ablaze and air-filled toxic smoke, the Kinney family was forcibly removed from their four fourth-generation home in the morning of September 9th, 2020. Multnomah County sheriffs bashed up in the Kinney family door at gunpoint armed with assault rifles, they barked orders for the family to pack up their belongings and, and move within 30 minutes. The Kinneys were given no prior legal notice, as their case was still in litigation with a higher court. Multnomah County Judge Judith H. Matazaro authorized eviction in direct violation of the state and federal eviction moratoriums. Government's in the wrong on this one. As far as I'm concerned, I could even stop here and say, how about we don't evict people during a mandatory lockdown? First and foremost, how about we end the mandatory lockdowns? That's where all this is stemming from. So I'll tell you what. The I'm sorry. Is poor, I, like, I want to agree with him because he's like fighting. He's kind of advocating for them to stay in their home. But I don't really think Portland's been under lockdowns like that. I, w I would have to do more autonomous research. Prob we, got, we, got, we got another problem here. Check it out. The left is saying don't evict people and pay them a stimulus. That's not a solution to the problem. But many of them are scared of COVID. Well, these activists certainly aren't. They're, well, I mean, they're wearing masks, sure, but they really don't care about COVID. They're not worried about it. And besides, survival rate for people under 70 is 99.9%, yet they don't care. I'm just going to say, so though, why that, lock like, everything down then? You know, people 
are deciding that going out in the streets and advocating for something is not as important as catching and spreading COVID. Because if we were to all stay home when protests are needed, then like the, the, I mean, democracy would die overnight because people just allowed the government to uh, apply the boot. And so, you know, you saw with the George Floyd protests that people had to come out and march in massive numbers in order to, uh, you know, let it be known to redress their grievances. So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's very funny as like, oh, we just don't care about it. Um, even though the BLM protests specifically haven't shown too much of spikes. Um, so it says here from KATU that Oregon governor Kate Brown extended her declaration of state of emergency uh expires january 2nd 2021 that doesn't mean a lockdown though i get okay so i guess there's certain closures it's more focused closures but it's not massive lockdowns um it says here according to the governor's office extending the state of emergency allows the executive orders that close schools and other operations to remain in effect so it's not a mass lockdown it's a more focused one and i would have to do more autonomous research in order to understand what they have locked down but it's so far it seems like schools the real answer is get everything back open give everybody a forgiveness period to get back on track to pay their bills and stop bashing doors open and evicting people because it's your fault. Look, I was in favor of the first stimulus package because I thought we were in an emergency. We can now see that much of that money went to major corporations and the lockdown was, a, was, was mostly a big mistake. I actually think that what we're seeing right now is the exploitation by Democrats and their political allies to essentially rob from the poor to give to the rich. I think... And yet, yet again, me and Tim Pool agree on something because this has been the uh, biggest transfer of wealth since the 2008 uh, housing crisis. So, you know, we, we agree on that. But unfortunately, as we're speaking now, Republicans in the Senate are, you know, spearheaded by Mitch McConnell, refusing to give $2,000 stimulus checks to Americans cleanly. No, you know, no no loose ends it's a clean bill is what uh bernie sanders and ed markey had offered and mitch mcconnell said i don't want a clean bill i want my own wins before americans can get two thousand dollars and you know if we had the same situation say as like canada which was giving uh their citizens two thousand dollars a month you have to wonder well is that the larger extent of uh, wealth redistribution, because of course most of our focus with the the COVID relief goes to the PPP loans. There's a little bit in unemployment benefits, and there's this time $600 in stimulus checks, but more of the bill is set for the PPP loans, which do go to larger corporations, big entrepreneurs, and then of course eventually smaller businesses. I think they're exploiting this crisis in every way imaginable to strip ownership from people like we saw with the World Economic Forum saying it. All these major corporations are on board with this great reset. I do not and will never support anybody who is acting at the behest of massive multinational corporations to steal from the working class of this country, from the people. <laughs> why did he support Donald Trump, who cut corporate taxes to record lows? 
That's exactly what that did. Because if you don't have them contributing into the government and them hoarding more money, then that takes away money from the people of this country who need social safety nets in such and such emergencies, like the one we're going through right now. So, like, there's a bit of hypocrisy coming right there that he, yeah, that's strange. He's, he supported having Trump for another two years, who probably would have cut the taxes even more, who brought down interest rates. It's ridiculous. That is a ridiculous statement. Street of, by, and for the people. Yet, we are continually being suppressed and oppressed. And he, he quotes the, the beginning of the, the preamble to the Constitution. And the unfortunate thing is, is the people were only considered to be the masters of wealth at that point in time. Now, of course, the working class people love to reappropriate the preamble to pretend that it actually means us. But we know were well informed on who wrote the constitution and what for was to protect their own private property from a monarchy not from that's it that's it it wasn't concerned with all the the peasants and the working class it was a concerned about the 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 new formed bourgeois class that had a ton of money from being merchants and them protecting their wealth from a monarchy who was uh, across the sea by not just corporations but their government cronies as well I wonder, with Joe Biden becoming president, if we will actually see some populist unity. Now, no. I bring this up in the context <laughs> of civil war earlier on. The only the only populist unity is like being uh, critical of Joe Biden. But I'm sure like each reason is going to be uh, varied and different uh, depending on where you sit on the political spectrum. So, um, yeah, the only unity is going to be critical of Joe Biden. But the reasons that's going to be different because this is people outright defying the state and the corporations. And at this point, like I said, you know what? You cops want sympathy from me as you're trying to enforce an eviction. I'm not, uh, I'm not all that interested in giving support to people who would enforce a draconian edict. So these cops, when they were being besieged for 100 days, I'll criticize Antifa because yeah, it, like it wouldn't have been draconian if we did like the can Canadian model of $2,000 per month because people would have been paid to stay home. Like that's not draconian. That's luxurious at that point to have your country so wealthy that it pays you to stay home. Um, yeah. So taking a federal courthouse. But you get these cops who are going to say it's unconstitutional. And he never fought for for uh, like these uh, survival checks or, uh, you know, UBI in an emergency. He always just said, reopen the economy, get people back to work. But that doesn't ultimately solve the COVID issue where like, honestly, the only way to stop a virus to, to get rid of a virus is to go the smallpox route, which is to eliminate the spread. And that came from the vaccines and it came from people being, you know, distance away from people who contracted smallpox, varying things went into it, but eventually smallpox smallpox went down to the point of near elimination. It only remains now in third world countries. Ebola has been uh, effectively isolated in certain areas, mainly because its infection is super hard. It's more infectious once a body, once somebody is actually dead. When they're sick, not so much, but once they die, that's when the virus is more likely to spread. And so it makes it much more easier to isolate it and it hasn't been such a problem, even though it is more deadly than the coronavirus. The coronavirus virus is super infectious and that's why we had to take extreme measures and to make sure that we shorten that spread and try to isolate the virus from spreading further but here we are now we have a new variant coming out which allegedly is 70 percent more infectious but we need more data on that but we have a variant and as long as the 
coronavirus is in existence, we will see more mutations as it spreads from humans to other uh, animals that also can contract the coronavirus. That's that's kind of that's a working theory on how this specific strain of coronavirus came from bats. But of course, not enough context coming from Timmy here. To lock you, they're oath breakers. They're oath breakers. They've broken their oath of the Constitution. I'm not. I'm not saying the autonomous zone is good. I'm saying they've actually crossed the line as well. But we are in trying times. But I wonder if Joe Biden could actually unify the populists in this country, because I can only imagine at a certain point, you know, I'm, I'm surprised Antifa isn't defending more of these Trump supporting businesses who are defying the lockdowns. It's weird tribalism. But <laughs> let me show you where we're at so far. Because it's like in, it's in denial of the COVID-19, like I just said, on how we have to isolate the virus by shortening the spread. People defying those like that gym owner. I don't know what state he's in, but he has a he has a gym where there's no mass and he keeps getting fined, but he keeps reopening it. And that just puts more people at risk of continuing to spread the virus. In this tweet. OK, I guess the there we go. It's loading, I suppose. In this tweet we have from Black Lives Matter, they tweeted, new profile pic. We won, they say. Black Lives Matter. Oh, did they? They've now tweeted, the night of their victory, we sent Joe Biden and Kamala Harris a letter requesting a meeting. It has now been 32 days and we have yet to receive a response. To set up a meeting with civil rights leaders without BLM is unacceptable. You didn't win. They used you. Recently, there was a viral hashtag. Stop. And I'm not one who wouldn't say that Democrats are also a bunch of ghouls. Case in point right there. Case in point. And unfortunately, they spoke too soon um, because they backed a candidate that would care just about as much as Trump did. Trump never met with any of their leaders either. So the left purge. But also, like, they, the Black Lives Matter organization has admitted that they are Marxist. So I bet for optics reasons, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won't come within meters of them because of that Marcus, Marxist ideology, because they don't want to be blamed also as Marxists, even though Fox News is going to do it regardless. Yep. Because on Twitter, several high-profile leftist accounts were instantly deleted without notice. Welcome to the fight, I say, to these people who kept... This has been happening for a while. Twitter has been doing that to leftist accounts for a while. Facebook has been doing that to leftist accounts for a while. YouTube has been doing that to leftist accounts for a while. Um, conservatives have always been saying that they, they are the ones most silenced only, you know, only when it takes like a high profile trending case, specifically like Steven Crowder. But it happens to leftists all the time, quietly saying but my private corporation welcome to the fight because we have been screaming it's only a matter of time before they come for you they used you they manipulated you to give joe biden power to enforce this great reset stripping away of rights of these individuals i don't know maybe these leftists actually like it it's a really confusing time to see the far left defending property rights but sure i guess it's better than the property rights of a big bang the property rights of an individual well now we are learning exactly what the results are on November 8th, the Black Lives Matter official Twitter account said we won. And 32 days later, they said we are being ignored. They used you to gain power. Everybody hates Joe Biden. He didn't win because people like him. If anything, he won because people don't like Trump or the media, I suppose, depending on what your opinion is like on the ongoing sure, litigation, yeah. for sure. Of course, I'm just saying 
in any circumstance, whatever the reason, Joe Biden didn't win for being popular. And that means that he is now being elected and although, nobody likes him. Although he and did win the popular to? vote. But the unfortunate thing is, is that he's that centrist Democrat who wants to work with Republicans. So, of course, he's going to get more criticism coming from farther left individuals. Like, of course, that's going to happen. It leads to revolution. I'll give you a real world example. I mentioned earlier I was in Egypt during the revolution, the second revolution. That was the removal of Morsi. First, you had, I believe it was Mubarak, who had been in for decades. There was a revolt. They removed him. They decided to hold an election. It was a first past the post election. One person, one vote. You know how that works. And I, a lot of people say it's not the best system. You ended up, this is my understanding, at the, when I was there, this is what I was told. You ended up with a bunch of different political parties. Now, eight out of 10 agreed with each other on almost everything, but little things they didn't. The Muslim Brotherhood was the biggest individual voting block. And with less than 20% of the vote or just around, they won the presidency. And that went to Morsi, who was uh, uh, an Islamist. He was, he was uh, uh, you know, Muslim Brotherhood. Nobody liked him. So they revolted again. This time, everybody banded together against the Muslim Brotherhood. And you got the second revolution just one year later. I was there. I watched it happen. And many people thought it didn't matter or it wouldn't happen, but it was a revolution that changed the government. The military stepped in and took over and then started executing supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood. And it was horrifying because the Muslim Brother was protesting and destabilizing the country because they were the largest minority group, but the one odd person out. So the government decided it's easier to get rid of the Muslim Brotherhood, hold an election, and then everyone kind of passively agrees, fine, I guess this person's okay. But the military basically took over. I watched it happen. And a lot of people went on with their lives as if it never happened. Just a few blocks away from the revolution in Tahrir Square, there was a McDonald's. And inside, people were having burgers and watching football. You know, European football, soccer, right? And down the street was a revolution. I went to Heliopolis. I went to the mall. Bought a cell phone, had some uh, uh, kebab. It was fantastic while the revolution was happening. And there are people in this country who think there is no revolution. It's not happening. This is just, you know, political squabbles. Forty four states are disputing who the president is. It's remarkable, isn't it? And on the ground, we have autonomous zones, clashes with police and a rejection of federal authority. It's so amazing how he took this story to flip it into like civil wars coming. It's, only Tim Pool can give that wonderful spin. O only he. he. he He's a magician. Well, we're waiting ever so patiently for the Supreme Court to issue their ruling, and it may and they denied. come at any moment, so stick around. Next segment is coming up at 4 p.m. on my All right. Yep, that's, that's it. It literally closes out not even talking about... He didn't really even cover their story enough, like why the Kennys should stay. He just kind of still uh, found a way to make it about like anti-lockdown, anti-leftist rhetoric. Like that's, wow, that's magic. Honestly, like you just not focusing on, on the individual story, which is why I clicked on this and just completely moving into this is why the lockdowns are bad. And this is why Democrats are always wrong. Um, maybe he used this as an opportunity to try and move people further to the right with the arguments that he was placing. But, um, yeah, uh, honestly, I just saw a bit of missing context and that's why I'm not sold. I'm still left.
So, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's the situation going on. And I hope that I was able to bring a bit more information about the homelessness situation in America and hoping that, you know, that was at least a surface level scratch for everybody to keep digging. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's going to be it for this episode. I am so tired and sorry for being tired. I apologize, and I hope next episode will be better. I think tomorrow I'm going to be doing the Theory Thursday reading over Yuval Noah Harari's Homo Sapiens, The History of Humankind, and I hope that can give us a bit of a break from the right wing. <laughs> Hopefully. Um, other than that, um, if you agree that shelter is a human right, like, subscribe, share hit me up on twitter at as a oh, oh that's not it anymore uh at toxin pod t-o-x-n-p-o-d and you can see me post uh pictures of right wingers telling me to die or something because i get a lot of those so yeah that's uh it's been a wonderful day in the life of america and i hope you enjoy yours and uh i'll catch you next time for some more talks no Outro music. Out outro. Outro. All right. <laughs>